Scheduled program with your host, Todd Ness. Listen, I got athlete's foot right in my foot and the crack of my toes. I got that fucking foot. You ever had that? Athlete's foot. It's first of all, I like that it's the only medical condition that makes you feel kind of good. You're like, yeah, I got, yeah, my toe is itchy. I got, uh, it's red. I got blisters, but the reason I even have that is because I'm a fucking athlete, dude. Oh, this is an athlete's condition. That's, <laughs> dude, I love that. I love that they named it that. That's great. Because otherwise, dude, if you just named it like fungus foot, no one's going to sleep with you. But you got that athlete's foot. People are like, I'll risk getting it. I'll raw dog it. Don't even put a condom on that foot. I'll raw dog it. Because you're an athlete. And it's fungus, but you know what? It's worth it because you can do a layup with a basketball. Or you can, uh, what do they say in baseball? You can hit a dinger. You can go bar down in hockey. You can throw a bullseye in darts. You can do a strike. You could even get a turkey. By the way, bowling. I got to say, I haven't seen the, you know, I haven't checked the stats on this. and I'm not a scientist. But I got to think bowling has to be the number one. I mean, you want to talk about a super spreader. You want to talk about the, the fact that bowling still exists post-pandemic where you're sharing shoes with people? I mean, dude, some people are still wearing masks. And those are the... You know what's so funny? Those people that wear the fucking masks still. Let's just talk about it, okay? Now, listen, I've never been anti-mask. I think it's completely fine. But the guy that wears the mask when he's alone in his own car, you got to respect yourself. I've been talking about this on stage. You need to get some self-esteem... And look yourself in the face. What are you doing? Why you're alone in your car with a mask on? I can only assume there's someone in the trunk. When I see someone with a mask on in their car and no one else in the seats, I have to assume they've kidnapped a person and their only thought is, I cannot get COVID on this murder. I'm just out here trying to kidnap people. I can't risk getting COVID and missing work on Monday. It's so hilarious. Or you'll see people out in the middle of a field by themselves wearing a mask. And you're like, hey, man, you're in the you're by yourself in nature. You can't get it. Relax. Relax. If it if you could get covid from being in the middle of a field by yourself, then there's no hope. There's no hope. What do you think? It comes from the trees. You think the grass is giving it off? Jesus. Plus, the people who are wearing the mask outside are also wearing the shit paper ones that don't do anything anyway. It's absolutely hilarious, dude. It's like, hey, do you wear a condom into a swimming pool? Because they might as well. Where's your water wings? What if there's a flood? You know, I'm all about safety, but come on, man. Dial it in. Sorry to start off so aggressive today. Like I said, that's the athlete's foot talking. My toes are so fucking itchy, dude. And I got that spray and it does help, but the spray really helps for like 30 seconds. And then you're reminded my toe is itchy. And I got to be honest, I told Jen she wanted me to wear socks last night, and I was going to, to stop the spread. I don't want to be a super spreader of athlete's foot. But then I realized that actually, you want to have your foot exposed. You want the air to come in. I don't know why. I don't know what the mechanism is there. But I, I remember whenever you have a wound or anything, they always say, let it breathe. Let it breathe. You got a little bit of a cut, let it breathe. You got some fungus in your foot, let it breathe. So that's what I did last night. And I think it was a mistake. I think that I let the, the fungus breathe and I think it got stronger. I think it grew overnight. And I believe when I look at it, I believe it is stocking up resources so that it can attack my other toes. I would not be surprised if there is a full on attack launched later this evening from that toe or later, even tomorrow, depending on how big of an army they're building up fungus army to launch into my other toes and take over my whole foot at which point I will probably pour lighter fluid on it and light it on fire because it's so goddamn itchy and you don't want to touch it though either that's the thing like at least when a mosquito bite is itchy you scratch it you're not supposed to because it's going to get worse but whatever you know it's like not, you're not spreading the mosquito bite but with the toe if I, if I touch that and then I touch can I get it in my eye dude can I get athlete's eye I don't know but I tell you what, it's not my first time getting athlete's foot. It's not my last time because I will not wear flip-flops in the shower at the public shower. I won't do it. And it's not a looks thing. It's not a fashion thing because trust me, I'm a huge flip-flops guy, especially being in Canada. 
As soon as it's literally plus four degrees outside, I'm flip-flops all day. Huge flip-flops guy. I don't care. And here's the reason I like flip-flops. Easy to put on, easy to take off. That's the whole reason. When you realize the convenience of being able to come home and just step out of your shoe, I, it's hard to go back to lacing something up. It's hard to go back to having to actually tie a shoe up when you know that you could just put on a flip-flop, walk through your life, come home, and kick that shit off. And actually, I would love to invent something where there is like um, disposable flip-flops. Like I would love to come home and I would honestly love to come home and just kick my flip-flop off and it goes into a fire and I'm done. And I don't give a shit. I just throw them on the ground like napkins. But that's for that's a tale for another day. Um, let's start off by saying thank you, first of all. Um, everyone who came out to my shows in Toronto a couple of weeks ago, huge thank you to you guys. We had three shows. We sold out the first two shows and damn near sold out the third show. And it's because you guys came out and we, uh, we actually had to add a show, which is a milestone for me. I've never, to be honest, had been in a position where I've sold so many tickets. We had to add a show. So I was, uh, you know, super pumped about that. And that felt amazing, especially in a place like Toronto where, you know, there's so many things going on. There's a lot of towns I go where there's nothing going on. And that's part of the reason you can sell tickets is because they're like, we don't know who this comic is, but it's either we go to his show tonight or we go play beer darts in Mike's backyard, which we've done every night for two and a half years. So you just win on default. But Toronto, it's like you guys could do anything. Not to mention, it's the NHL playoffs right now. And the Saturday night early show was literally almost at the exact same time as game seven for Toronto. The show was at seven. The, the Toronto game was at 730. So I was fully expecting to walk down into the club and see like four people. Because even though I knew we had good ticket sales, you know, it's game seven of the, the NHL playoffs. And I got to be honest, I thank everyone who came to the show that night. Um, but if it was game seven when the Flames are in, I would not have gone out. So thank you. Again, that's an even bigger thank you because I came down the stairs on that Saturday night and the show was packed. And I just, it's a feeling... And I don't want to get emotional and I don't want to cry in the podcast, but it was an incredible feeling because I knew that the vast majority of you that came to the show were there um, to see me. And I, that really was, I take that very seriously and um, I'm glad that we had an amazing show. Now that show, there was a bit of bumpiness because we had a fucking bachelor party who wouldn't shut the fuck up. And I apologize to use such language, but Jesus Christ was that annoying. First of all, dude, if you're going to do your bachelor party, you know, I understand how it's like, listen, it's kind of hacky to go to the strip club, all that type of shit, whatever. That's fine. You don't have to go to the strip club. You don't, it doesn't even have to be rowdy. And I also understand that some guys, their girl's a little bit controlling, right? The girl is a little bit, you don't, what are you doing? Right? A little bit fun checky. What are you up to? So <laughs> listen, I completely respect the fact that someone wants to do a bachelor party that is not just going to a strip club, not just getting hammered. But if you're not going to do that and you decide to do something else, like go to a comedy show, then you have to adjust your energy accordingly. So I think what happened here was we had a bachelor party who came to the show. Apparently, I found out through the MC doing crowd work with them that the bachelor didn't know this was what it was. They just surprised him. They said, get in the car. We're going to take you somewhere. And no offense to myself or the audience or comedy in general, but if my guys, if my boys swooped me up for a com like for my bachelor party and took me to a comedy show, I'd be pretty fucking pissed. That's that you can go to a comedy show whenever. And dude, I do stand up comedy. I'm the last one to say not to do a comedy show. But for a bachelor party, come on. And I think the issue was, you know, this guy didn't he was maybe expecting the traditional bachelor party. So they brought the strip club rowdy energy to the comedy show. And you can't do that. Cause I had these guys chatting the whole time for the first 10 minutes of the set, 15 minutes. And I actually, what was too bad was I actually had to stop the show at one point and just go, who is talking? Stop talking. And that was a huge bummer. Cause we had a ripping start. There was a guy with a headband. You'll see him in the video on my Instagram. Um, that was right at the beginning of the show. We were having a blast, but the whole time, I'll tell you, there's nothing more annoying for a comedian 
than somebody chatting. That's worse than heckling, honestly. Because it, when there's a heckler, the whole audience hears. And then I get to go back at them. And everyone gets to hear the whole exchange. And nine times out of ten, the comedian's going to win. When someone is just chatting, the people around them hear them. And they're annoyed. But a lot of times, the other people in the room can't hear. And so then the comedian, such as myself, gets frustrated, gets annoyed, has to stop the show, has to keep going, who's talking? Please stop talking. And some people don't hear them chatting. So then you as the performer just come across like you're being um, like you're being really sensitive or you're being like a bully to those people. It's w the worst. So anyway, these guys just wouldn't stop talking, talking, chatting, chatting so loud, right? And I almost was going to like very rarely have I kicked people out. But when I feel like it's not at all like, listen, I've had people who are loud and I go, you got to be quiet. And they go, yeah, sorry, I'm sorry. And I'm like, OK, at least you're, you know. You're acknowledging this. There's a chance you're going to quiet down. These dudes, it was like, didn't even listen. And then eventually they were quiet and then they refused to laugh. And I'm like, whatever, dude, that's fine. I don't care. I'd rather you be quiet and sit there stone face because I didn't ruin Hey, man, I didn't ruin your bachelor party, bro. You almost ruined the show for the other 250 other people who paid. And your friends, that's on them. If you didn't want to be at a comedy show, that's on your friends you have shit friends that made a terrible decision to bring you there. Ooh, am I spicy about this? Dude, I knew I was going to talk about this. I didn't know this anger was going to come out. I got to be honest. <laughs> I didn't know I was going to be so... But it does. You know what? I got to be honest. It pisses me off. Because they acted like... Then they sat there all mean mugging. They acted like I have a duty to make his bachelor party good. No, I don't. I have a duty to make the show as amazing as possible. And I can't do that if you dum-dums are chatting. So that's on you. And you know what? I hope you had a terrible bachelor party. <laughs> I'm just kidding, man. I appreciate it, especially if you guys came like to see me specifically. I do appreciate. But, you know, it's just a lesson. And again, I think it was more. I think in the regular circumstance, those guys are probably really into comedy, probably really like stand up comedy and would have been great. But it was a bachelor party. You guys are ready to be rowdy as you should be. And that's why I'm saying I don't think comedy shows are the best thing for that celebration. Now. If it's a comedian that is like the bachelor or whatever, like the groom to be's favorite comic, you know, and it's a big, then that totally makes sense. That's a real treat. But listen, man, if you, if it's just like, we're just going to do a comedy show because it's going to be fun. You need to rethink that unless you're a group of guys who are going to be pretty tame about the whole situation. Anyway, I've beat this horse to death. The shows were other than that small thing. They were amazing. And like I said, packed. I was super pumped about that, and I am sorry that Toronto lost. It was a real bummer, and I could tell the second I came up from the show, the Saturday early show, I hadn't checked the score, but the game would have been over like you know right before the show ended or whatever. While well, I was back there, you know, taking pictures and everything, and when I came to the street level, dude, just the vibe on the street, I could sense immediately that it didn't go well. Like if you do, dudes were like moping around. There was one guy crying on a tree and I did feel, I felt bad, you know? I mean, am I a Toronto Maple Leafs fan? No. Do I really buy into the whole cheering for Canadian teams no matter what? Not really, to be honest. Because at the end of the day, it's like, it's nice if a Canadian team wins, but you have to think if it's about, you know, if the motive for that is that it's nice for Canada, like most of the players in the NHL are Canadian. So some there's some teams that have, that are U.S. teams that have more Canadians. So I've never really been into that whole thing. Um, speaking of which, we have now one of the... Oh, I was going to say this too. Before I even get into the Battle of Alberta, dude, the first day that I got into Toronto, so that I came in on the Friday. I land. I take the, the Up Express. And by the way, shout out to cities that have connected their trains at the airport to the city. I'm talking to you, Vancouver. I'm talking to you, Toronto. Genius. Calgary, what the fuck are we doing? We have a train that goes to 3% of the city, and they didn't even connect it to the airport. It's the most useless goddamn thing I've ever seen in my life. And you realize when you go to a city where it's connected that you're like, oh yeah, that's the whole point of public transportation. Is you should be able to hop on the train and ride it into town. 
Otherwise, dude, Calgary, you get into a taxi at the airport and it's like immediately $75 just to get into it. And then they drive 30 kilometers an hour and just rack it up. And then they wonder why people take Uber. Anyway, I digress. Thank you, Toronto and Vancouver, for connecting your cities um, to the airport and any other cities that have done the same thing. It makes a huge difference. It's a, it's a huge it's a huge win for anyone visiting or anyone coming back home too, I, I bet. So anyway, I take the train into the city. First day in Toronto, I'm feeling good. Um, and But here's the thing is the night before I left, I had a little bit of wine, which is dehydrating. Typically when I wake up in the morning, I will crush, like in a regular day, I will crush a ton of water. When I first get up, I have this jug of water that's like two liters and I fill that thing up. Within an hour to an hour and a half of being awake, typically, I'll drink that whole thing. So I'll get like two liters of water into my body immediately. And it's just something I feel, it makes me feel good. I like to feel like I'm mega hydrated. It's just a great way to start the day. Um, that day, I did not drink the two liter because I was getting, you know, I'm traveling, I'm getting on an airplane, all that type of stuff. Um, and so I don't want to end up, there's nothing worse than, you know, sitting on a plane and having, to, you know, to pee. It's just an absolute pain in the ass or dick. Um, so I didn't drink it. So I get to Toronto again. I'm a little dehydrated from the night before. I had a little, um, I had a bottle of water on the train to the, uh, hotel. I get to the hotel. I have an energy drink when I get there. And by the way, I check into the hotel. We'll, we'll get into that in a second. Anyway, I uh, have an energy drink when I get there. I go and I hop on the treadmill. And uh, right within the last two minutes of being on the treadmill, all of a sudden, I can't see out the middle of my eyes. I can't see anything. And it's happened before because I, every now and then, We'll get migraines and I can't remember what this is called. I think it's called like an ocular migraine or something like that. But essentially you can tell the migraine is coming on because that's exactly what happens is you'd start to lose your vision and it can either for me start in the peripheral and move to the center or the center and spread to the peripheral. And that's exactly what happened is it started in the middle. So I'm on the treadmill looking at the numbers and all of a sudden I can't see them anymore. And it's such a weird thing. It's hard to explain what that even means, but it's basically like you look at something and it's not black. It's just not there. I don't even know how to explain it. You can't, it's almost like, it's like, um, I literally don't even know how to say it's like floating. It's like, there's a floating thing on your eye that's blocking everything. And immediately I feel gross because I know a migraine is coming on. And so I hop off the treadmill immediately and because it started in the middle, what it does is it spreads to the peripheral slowly, but surely. And so I basically run to my room and I realize, I mean, th at this point I got three hours until the show and I go, I can't cancel this show. There's no fucking way I'm going to cancel this show that I'm going to be sick. People have bought tickets to come. You know, I haven't been in, in Toronto for forever. There's no way that I can't perform on this show. So I got to figure out a solution. All I can think to do is I'm thinking back and I'm going, hey, I'm probably dehydrated from having wine the night before. I'm probably, you know, then I had not very much water. Then I had an energy drink with caffeine, which dehydrates you. Then I hopped on a treadmill, which again, sucked water out of my body via the sweat. So I'm like, I think my theory at the time, being a, being a impromptu scientist, was my theory is I think my brain is dehydrated. So what I need to do is just chug water immediately. So what I did, I ran to 7-Eleven and at this point the blindness gets bigger and bigger to the point where I couldn't even see almost anything. Both my eyes now have it and it's sort of floating around both my eyes. I can't see, I can sort of see out of my peripheral, but it's, it's brutal, man. It's tough. It's very tough to see anything. So I'm just like kind of going with my peripheral vision to 7-Eleven trying to like navigate off my phone, which I can barely see. I get there and I pick up two one and a half liter jugs of water and I walk back to the hotel and I just slam them and I drink three liters of water in probably 20, maybe 30 minutes. I'm just slamming water and I fill them up again and I slam two more of them. So within an hour and a half, I drank six liters of water and this is how I know 
at least part of my theory was right was because if you were hydrated and you drank six liters of water, you would be pissing insane. Like you would be peeing every three minutes after you get that in you. I drank that and I don't even think I went, I don't even think I took a pee for a, a while after a while, which means there was such a deficit of hydration in my body that I needed almost six liters of water. Now, given I did pee eventually a lot of it out, so it wasn't the full six, but I needed liters of water to get back to normal, which makes sense. And I'm like, yeah, that makes sense. My brain, all the water got sucked out of it. So it's having a fucking cramp. And that's what leads to a migraine perhaps. So all I can say is if for anyone else, if you ever, if you have something similar and you have the ocular migraine where you can't see, or if you have any type of migraine, especially if you're lucky enough, like I, I don't like the ocular one because obviously you're blind for a bit and it feels disgusting. But the only benefit with that is that you know it's coming. You have a heads up from nature or whatever that you're going to have a migraine. And so if you have a warning, if you have migraines and you have a warning, the only thing that I can recommend, this is from my experience. I don't know if you guys know, I'm not a doctor. I'm not a certified doctor. Okay. I'm not a migraine. I'm not a blood doctor. I'm not a migraine I'm not a brain scientist, but I would say hydrate as much as you possibly can because every other time that I've had a migraine start like that with the, with the blindness and the moves to a migraine, dude, I'm out. Normally I have to take gravel. I have to take Tylenol three and just try to sleep it off and I can barely move. This was the only time in the history of all the migraines I've got over my life where it still hurt. I'm not going to pretend it didn't hurt and I still had fogginess for sure, but I was able to via just hydrating, get myself back to a place within two hours, three hours of that thing starting where I was able to perform, uh, on, on a show and do comedy. And that's crazy to me that, that, that actually worked because otherwise if that had not worked at all, and I would have been in a state that it typically, like a migraine typically puts typically knocks you off your ass. And you can't do anything. I would have been completely fucked. So thank God all of that worked out. And then, of course, I get to the show and it's packed. And uh, I was like, all right, here we fucking go. You got to battle through. And let's go. And my, my head was hurting a little bit. But I'll tell you, when I got on stage, the adrenaline took over and I felt, you know, pretty much back to normal. I could still feel some haziness and I could still feel my brain not firing as fast as normal. But I was beyond happy that I was able to at least still pull off the show uh, and do it. And thank God we only had one show that night. Because after when I got back to the hotel, the adrenaline wore off. And then my head was fucked again. And um, it is weird. When you get a migraine, it's not just the pain. It's also like even the next day, I was going to go for a really big run. And I just couldn't. You still feel off. It's something. The chemicals in your brain get so scrambled that you just feel off for like a day and a half. Um, so anyway, yeah, fun times. It was a really good start to the trip. On top of the fact that when I got to the hotel, now I was staying at the Hilton, not a huge flex, but you know, I treated myself on this one and I booked at the Hilton. I like to have a nice hotel. It makes a big difference when traveling and sometimes you got to splurge, spend a little extra, book at a nice hotel. I go to the Hilton and I check in, at the, you know, and I go up to the room and I open the door and I'm ready to just crash for a little bit before I go, you know, hit the gym, get ready for the show. And I open the door and, and the first thing I see is a suitcase. Um, and the second thing I see is a pair of legs on the bed. And there's a lady just sitting there. And I don't know how she was so calm giving. I didn't knock on the door. I didn't announce myself. I just came on in. And as she was like looking at her phone, she's like, hello. As if like she thought I was the maid or something. Just someone checking on the room from the hotel. And then she looks over and sees me. I'm not wearing a maid outfit. I got a, I got a fucking blue V-neck on and I'm out there holding my luggage and she's like, what the fuck? And I'm like, I'm like, is this your room? And she's like, yeah, is this your room? And I'm like, I don't know. This is, they booked me in here. So she shows me her card. I show her my card. Yeah. These momos booked us in the same room, which is pretty, listen, I understand how that can happen and it is a mistake. Mistakes happen. That's fine. But when you think about the liability of that, when you actually think about how dangerous that is. First of all, let's say she wasn't there and you booked someone in the wrong room. Let's say you booked into a room 
You have all your shit in there, your valuables, your computer. Let's say you leave, you go for dinner and someone else checks in and they get a card to your room. Now, fortunately, I'm a good guy. I'm not involved in the crime, organized or otherwise. Not even little crimes other than speeding. I do speed. That's my crime of choice, but not theft. But imagine, imagine there was a guy with sticky fingers or gal, a little thief, gets a key to your room, jackpot. They could literally steal all your shit. They could put, they could take your toothbrush and they could rub it between their toes on their athlete's foot or feet, depending on how many they have. They could put your toothbrush in their butt. They could take your contacts lens, lenses, rub and rub them on their butt, and then you're going to get pink eye. They could, they could um, spit on your computer. Um, and they could even just do other, they could like prank you. They could, they could order a poutine and then dump it on your bed. You know what I'm saying? Like they have access to all your shit in your room. That's frightening. And that's if you're not there. Now also imagine this is a woman. She's alone. She's in her room. And now I've come in. I have access to her room. Again, that's pretty obvious what the safety concerns are there. And what if she was there earlier? What if she was taking a nap? What if she was naked? This is all the things I'm saying. So it's actually a pretty big fuck up to put someone in the wrong room. Fortunately, fortunately, it was fine. I go back down to the desk and I just mentioned, hey, you know, you guys, uh, my room, I said, hey, my room came with a human. Could I get one without one? Hey, could I get a room um, that doesn't already include a WestJet stewardess in it? Maybe I'm being picky. Maybe I didn't read the booking.com details correctly. Maybe I booked the one that comes with the person. I don't know. But I thought I booked a room just for myself. And here's where I'll tell you, they're lucky I'm not a Karen because if a Karen had this situation happen, this is the exact thing that a Karen waits for. A booking fuck up? Could you imagine the way a Karen would react to this? It, dude, it would be, she'd be down there filming it with her phone. It would be on Instagram Live. It would be on IGTV if anyone even uses that function. Google Play, if anyone's ever listened to that. Everything over this ordeal. But I don't make a big deal. And she says, oh, yeah. Now, this is where I think they were like, this is where I knew they had good customer service training because she goes oh that's we're so sorry but look at this i actually have a better room for you and i'm like mm-hmm mm-hmm what a sneaky little trick hey they try to smooth it over by going like well i have an even better room you're so lucky i'm like yeah okay i'm sure you do and um so i go up to the other room the other room looks exactly the same it was not a better now it was on a higher floor that's kind of neat but no same room when she says i have an even better room for you i was expecting like a jacuzzi I mean, actually, technically, she was right. It was actually a better room, given that it didn't have another human already in it. So maybe that's what she meant. So I go up there. Now, that that is mistake number one. Okay? Now, one mistake, that's fine. One mistake, it happens. Like I said, I'm not a Karen. I'm very easygoing with stuff. Whatever. Eventually, ultimately, I got my room. Not a huge hassle. Fine. Okay? Later that night, here's mistake number two. I go down to the restaurant and the bar to eat after the show. And I order a hamburger. Easy order, blah, blah, blah. Shows up. The thing is fucking raw. The hamburger was barely cooked. I don't know why. I don't know what I did to deserve it. But the hamburger's like raw, dude. So I take one bite. It was so raw, I could taste the rawness. And I was like, man, if I just came off having a migraine, for this first for the Friday show and now I got to deal with food poisoning for the Saturday shows. This is going to be the most challenging comedy weekend of my life. So immediately, dude, after one bite, actually I think I took two cuz I'm a fucking animal. I noticed this thing's raw. So I I again, I'm not very reactive with this stuff. I'm pretty easygoing. I will only send things back if it absolutely needs to be sent back because I always feel like the kitchen has a chip on their shoulder when stuff gets sent back and they can do anything they want to that food. So I feel like unless it's super obvious that something's wrong, I, I mean, I got to think there's if someone said something back and it's super obvious, they can't be mad at that person, right? That's what I got to think. 
And this was super obvious. The thing looked like it was flamingo meat, dude. It looked like they chopped the neck out of a flamingo and put it on my plate. That's how pink this goddamn burger was. So I send it back. And uh, first of all, I have to flag a guy down. This is where I'm like, it's all sort of a thing with customer service. And for a Hilton, which I, I guess prides themselves on that, it was kind of bizarre. Like I had to flag a guy down. No one ever came over and asked how my meal was. And I'm like, hey, this is, can I get this, you know, this is raw. Can I get it cooked? They take it back. And this is where it's like, what they did is fine, but it was surprising. Is that they literally dissembled my burger, obviously. They cooked, they recooked the exact same patty that I already bit and brought it back to me with the same fry. And that's fine because that's what I asked. And that's what, that was my order. But again, for somewhere that is supposed to be a higher end hotel, I mean, I've gone to a Chili's in Banff where they undercooked my burger. Again, mistakes happen. That's fine. You know what they did? Left the fries, made me a whole new burger with fries. So I got double fries and comped it off the bill. And just, it was surprising to me that it's like they effed it up. And for a place like that to not like give me a whole new meal or even give a discount on the bill was just surprising from my side of things. So I'm saying what they did was fine, but it wasn't a very good customer service experience. And then on top of that, that's mistake number two. This, this podcast, by the way, is going to be called complaints. (laughs) Like, dude, I'm not trying, honestly, I'm not trying to complain about this stuff, but I'm just saying it was surprising the number of errors here. So first of all, wrong room, undercooked burger, lack of effort, like re, you know, fixing the situation. Three, then I get up to my room and the remote control is dead. <laughs> Fine, whatever. Again, I don't care. But again, if I was like a Karen, you guys get it, whatever. The remote control is dead. I bring it down to the front desk and I'm like, Hey, my remote is dead. Can I get batteries? And her first response is like, Oh, I don't think we have batteries, but you can go to the store. And I'm like, what? She's like, yeah, you could go to the store in the lobby. And I'm like, I'm not, what are you talking? Dude, this is your remote. What are you talking? I'm not buying batteries for your remote. What the fuck are you talking about? And again, in isolation, that's not a huge deal. But it's like the wrong room, the fucked up burger with terrible effort fixing it, and then the no batteries, and then getting told I should buy batteries for the remote was horrendous. And I put up a Google review about this, and then I felt bad, and I took it down. And then actually someone from the hotel called me and left me a message, because I guess they must have seen the review. And again, I'll give them credit for that. They must have seen the review obviously found and at first I was like how would they ever know who it was and I'm like oh yeah because my name's on the review and then my name is in the hotel directory and they left me a message so actually I'm going to call this guy back and just say what happened I'm not even expecting anything I don't need money I don't need compensate but it's like dude clean it up you made three mistakes in like two days I was there for two days you guys effed up three things now other than that it was a great hotel there was a cool pool party on the top the gym was kind of was decent. So other than that, a grand old stay. But that's it. Toronto, amazing. Thank you guys for coming out. I love being. I love it. I think Toronto is one of the coolest places to me for, you know, for for uh, atmosphere. Like the downtown is bumping. There's so many cool restaurants. That type of thing. Toronto, Vancouver, dude. If you guys were not so goddamn expensive, both those cities, I would live in in both of them. I would love to have a place in Vancouver and Toronto and just fly back and forth. One one month in Vancouver, one month in Toronto. Although I will say this, Toronto, humid as fuck. Humid as fuck. I, I've only been at, to Toronto in the winter. And when I went there a couple weeks ago, dude, I thought we maybe took a wrong turn and landed in Dominican Republic. The DR, baby. That's the only other place where I've seen, experienced that level of humidity. Unbelievable. But my I'll tell you one thing, my skin is glowing. <laughs> so that's it for that. Now let's talk about, I have still not talked about the marathon that I ran in Vancouver. Speaking of that, um, that was a few weeks ago. Um, and it was such an interesting, now I've been training for, you know, for anyone who's, you know, just sort of started whatever. I don't even, I, it's gross to say like started following me or whatever. I hate that, but, um, I'm a big runner. I'm balls deep in running. I did the Calgary marathon, uh, a year ago, 
And this year, you know, my brother and I and my father did the the Calgary Marathon last year in uh, September. And so we turned it into an annual thing. And this year we said, let's go do the Vancouver Marathon, which was, by the way, cool. It's cool to have a thing with your brother and especially your dad that you can, you know, it's that makes you hang out together. It makes you go do an event and especially something challenging like a marathon together is is cool because um, we don't really have things like that other than that. And so it's a new thing we've started and hopefully we'll keep it as an annual trip. Um, my dad is, de- that was his first marathon. And in his words, that's his last one. So I don't think he's going to do another marathon again, but he'll probably do a half next year when we do it. So, um, anyway, for Vancouver, you know, I trained for that, I believe about six months. Um, I missed about a month and a half through injury, which was too bad. I fucked up something in my, in my glute, in my right glute. And I was literally hobbling around for a month and a half, barely able to run. Um, and then fortunately after physio, we got it figured out. Um, and I was able to train again, but I did lose a month and a half. And so my goal going into the race, you know, for Calgary, I got three hours and 14 seconds, which meant I missed the cutoff for the Boston marathon by 14 seconds, which is just ridiculous. When I think back and like how close, like it just is absolutely, it just is torturing to think about missing that by 14 seconds. So my goal for Vancouver was, uh, two hours 50 and I trained, you know, specifically for that time for six months. And, um, we got to there, the conditions on race day, uh, were, were incredible. And this, the, the race was on May 1st. Um, and it was great. It was cool. No rain, a little bit of sun, uh, about eight degrees. That is exactly what you want when you're running a marathon. You do not want heat. Even a, anything about 12, 13, 14 degrees, you start getting hot and you heat up so quick with running. You want it to be cool. Actually four degrees, five degrees is perfect. You want it to be really nice and cool. You do not want any wind because obviously, you know, especially if you're going into a headwind that just sucks the energy out of you. This is what was challenging about the Vancouver course was that the, there was so many hills, which was surprising because we talked to someone before the race who had done it before. And he said, there's kind of a downhill at the beginning, a little bit of an uphill after that. And then it's pretty flat. And I don't know what, I don't know if this guy just forgot, but that was an absolute goddamn lie. Because this thing had so many hills in the first half of the race. And the issue is, or the challenge, not the issue, is that when you when there's hills, it absolutely, it takes a huge toll on your running. Because obviously going up a hill, way harder than running flat. And then when you're coming back down a hill on the other side, even though it's easier to go faster because gravity's working with you, you now have to expend more energy to actually control your speed. So your legs are just getting thrashed on the way down. So either way, you're expending more energy than you would on flat by going up and down these hills. And that's really what it was for the first 21 kilometers was this continuous up and down. And so I ran my first, the first half of it actually on a really almost close to my pace, which I was targeting. I did an hour 26 on the first half of the marathon. I was in a great spot. And I got lucky because there was a woman who was running like the exact pace that I wanted. And so I basically just tucked in behind her and it saved me a lot of mental energy because I didn't have to check my watch for splits. I didn't have to keep looking at my Garmin. I just kind of went right behind her and trusted her. And every time that I would check the split, she was nailing it. So that's super lucky in a race to find someone who's doing the same speed that you want that helps you just take your mind off and then also pulls you along with you is a huge advantage. So I tucked in behind her and I stuck with her until about the 35 kilometer mark. And that's when I hit the wall. And that's when all of the thrashing from earlier in the race of going up the hills, of coming down the hills started to show up and manifest in my legs and cardio wise, I was fine. And I think this is, you know, the experience of most people that run a marathon is that you find at the end, the la- the challenging part is that last, you know, 10, I'd say five to 10 kilometers. Um, and it's not from a cardio standpoint, because if you've been training at all, you know, your heart and your lungs can hang in there pretty well. It's really your legs because your legs are taking an absolute beating. And when you're training for a marathon, you never actually run 
that full distance, which is such an interesting thing to me compared to other races. Now, if you're training to do a 5K, you would run 5K. If you're training to do a 10K, you would have training sessions where you're running 10Ks. Even if you're running a half marathon, you would have some long runs where you're going to do 21 kilometers. The marathon is unique because it's the one of the only races that you never actually run a full 42.2 kilometers in training because it's so, um, it takes such a toll on your body that if you did it, the recovery time is so long that you would actually miss out on it, the ability to do training sessions that would improve your fitness, if that makes any sense. It's like you'd break your body down so much that it, it would actually, um, you'd actually go backwards if you were running marathons while training for one. So you run shorter distances. Um, and you do long runs, but never 42. And then you just have to trust yourself. And I was going to say hope, but it's not hope. It's like, you have to trust that you're that on race day, you're going to rise to the level of the race and that your body is going to show up and that your training was enough that you're going to be able to do the full distance. And especially if you're trying to hit a certain time that you're going to be able to do it at the pace that, um, you need to, to, to break a certain time. So you know, I got to 35 kilometers and I was doing a pretty good pace at that point. And I realized at that point, um, I'm not going to do 250, two hours, 50 minutes, but I can still break three hours, which is significant and a milestone for me. Um, because it's sort of the Holy grail for amateur marathon runners is to break three hours. That's sort of like, the, you know, the pinnacle mark, the significant milestone. Um, and it also technically means that for my age group, I would qualify for the Boston Marathon, which has been, both of those have been a goal for me since I started, you know, trying to train for marathons in general. So, especially after missing it by 14 seconds at Calgary. So, I got to 35 kilometers and all I could do at that point was start doing the math in my head because my legs were lead and I'm just pulling myself along at that point. Um, and for any runners out there, this will mean something for for anyone who doesn't run, maybe not. But in the first half of the race, I was running about 409, 405 to 409 minutes per kilometer pace. When I got to 35 kilometers, I slowed down to about 440, I think almost 450 minutes per, per kilometer pace was all I was able to keep pushing at. And so I literally just had to do the math in my head release the goal of wanting to do a two hours, 50 marathon and just start pumping myself up going, you're on pace to break three hours. Yes. It's frustrating that now we've slowed down so much, but you have done so well to put yourself in this position. Let's keep going. And that was the mental battle I had to have with myself in my head. I just had to keep going. You're not on the pace that you thought you could do this whole time, but you have to be positive. And you, because you were able to do that in the first half, just keep going. And that's all I could think because it, I can't even explain the pain involved at that point of the race. Um, the, the, the games that your brain starts to play on you because it no longer, your brain does not want you to do this. It does not want you, your body to go through this with this. It doesn't even understand why you're doing it. And so it started telling me all these subconscious thoughts come up that are trying to trick you. And they're like, Hey, just stop for a minute. Just walk for a little bit. You're going to be fine. All And that's just little tricks that your brain tries to do. And I, you have to acknowledge them. And I knew that if I even stopped running for a second, I would be fucked. Because yes, it hurts and it hurt to keep going. But it also is way harder to stop and then try to resume. I knew if I stopped, I would have been fucked. And all I could think was you know, going through that much pain for that long and that distance to give up right at the end at the 37 kilometer mark to stop at the 38 kilometer mark or the 39 kilometer mark. I would be so disappointed with that. It would feel good at the moment or it would feel relieving, but I knew I would be so disappointed. So I had to, for the last eight kilometers, just focus on let's just break three hours, just break three hours. And I kept saying to myself, you're doing good. Don't panic. Don't freak out. Just break three hours. And I kept every kilometer. I would look at my speed or my time and just go, all right, if I do the remaining at five minutes per kilometer, which I thought would be worst, worst case scenario. I'm like, I'm pretty sure I can beat that. 
I'll still break three hours. And that's what gave me the hope it was because I, I had a pretty good feeling that even at my slowest pace, even in that amount of discomfort, I could still break three. So I said, just literally, I started taking one kilometer at a time. And I was like, just do this one in under five minutes. Boom. And then I would do that one in under five minutes. And I was like, I was at, you know, 37 kilometers. I'm like, just do the next kilometer at under five minutes. Boom. 440. Okay. Perfect. Just do the next one at under five minutes. And that was the mental and physical struggle for the last 7.2 kilometers of that race. And I'll tell you, as I was going around on the seawall, there was a lot of people in front of me who, who would pull over and stop. And it was so tempting. And when I saw them pull over and stop, I never had a thought of like, what a wuss or what a wimp. I always thought I know exactly why they did that. When you, when I saw them pulling over, I was like, I know because that is what my brain wants to do. That is what my body wants to do. I know exactly why you did that. And it's actually a rational decision because this fucking hurts so bad physically and mentally. And then literally one kilometer at a time and you get to like 40 kilometers. And the ironic part too, is you think that when you're running something that's 42 kilometers, you would think when you get to 40 that you'd be like, Oh, there's only two kilometers left. I'm almost there. Cause it's so little when you think about it just on paper, but you get to 40 and you, all you think is like, Holy fuck. I still have two kilometers left. This is insane. So that last part of the race was the most physically and mentally challenging thing. I think that I know I know that I've ever gone through and it took everything, every like ounce of energy I had, um, especially mentally was the biggest part to push through. And when I came up the hill and you make sort of this one last turn and you come downtown and you can see the arches, which again, before I ran the race, you know, I visualized in my head that when I saw the arches for the finish line, that that would fill me with so much energy that I would just be immediately relieved of pain and I'd be able to really just enjoy the cheers. Dude, I saw the arches and they just looked like they kept moving farther and farther away from me. Like it was never going to end. It was absolutely insane. And it wasn't until I was probably literally a hundred meters away from the arches where I finally felt like they were coming towards me and I could see the end in sight. And I knew that I was going to break three hours that it was, that was the first moment of, of pure joy in the race. And it took all of that time. It took 42 kilometers to get the joy for the last like 0.2. But that moment when I crossed at the end and I broke in three was again, another insane feeling, something that I've rarely felt with a lot of things where it's just so overwhelming. And that pain goes away immediately. I couldn't even tell you right now what it felt like because it kind of drifts away. As the memory drifts away, you no longer conceptualize it. You just know intuitively it hurt, but I couldn't really explain it because I don't even know if I remember anymore. But you know when you when you know to break 3 was awesome. And I know I get to I get to have that forever. So I was extremely you know on one hand I was disappointed because I thought I was going to go be able to go really low and get a 250 to our 50. But on the other hand I was and more importantly, I was excited because I broke three hours, which is been a goal I've had since, you know, day one. And to do it in my second marathon, I'm more than happy. So I think I'm going to have to go lower than that to truly qualify for Boston because you have to break three hours and then they usually will move it down depending on how many applicants there are. But um, that's why I'm doing Chicago in October. I think that one I'll be able to do it much faster. Um, and hopefully if I don't get injured, I'll have a much better training program for that one anyway. So that was, um, a super cool experience. And again, when you're, it's funny because when you're in that last, like I remember getting to 35 kilometers and I'm like, why do I do this? Like, why am I even doing this stuff? It hurts. I don't even know why I'm into this stuff. I don't even know why I like running. And then literally two days after that race, I was like, okay, hey, where's the next one? So call me addicted, baby. Um, but yeah, that was amazing. And I'm glad the conditions held up. Um, last thing before we go, is that a battle of Alberta is going on right now. And this is the first time, I think they said 30 years or something that Calgary and Edmonton have, have faced off in the playoffs. And, you know, I'd like to say it's been, I would love to say, if you told me after game one, ask me, I'd say like, it's been amazing so far, dude. It's now, what did the Oilers are up three, one or some shit. It's been fucking brutal as a flames fan. It's been 
brutal. We dominated game one. The Flames got two goals on their first three shots in game one. And I was like, here we go to the moon. And then ever since that, and even that game, dude, even that game, we got up by like, I don't even know, five to one. Even that game, the Oilers tied it up. And we barely beat them. And then the next three games, we've been absolutely dominated. And then the game last night, which was game four, we actually finally tied it up with Mike Smith letting in one of the dumbest, worst playoff goals of all time, which history will not remember because the Oilers ended up winning. But had Calgary pulled off the win in that, dude, that would have been a highlight reel for all time of worst goalie bloopers. We shot it from our own like face-off dot, and it went in. Absolutely hilarious. But even that, even that, we tied up in the third period, and we lost. Oh, my God. So game five on Thursday. Game five on Thursday is going to be it, man. Well, no, literally is it. Because if Oilers win, they win the series. It's in Calgary. I do not want to see us lose in Calgary. So if you're a Flames fan, God help us. Pray for us. Um, And if you're an Oilers fan, that's all I can say is I make that noise. My God. So we'll see what happens. It's an exciting time. I feel like the next podcast I do, that series is going to be determined. So this might be the last time I'm... This might be the last time I'm optimistic about it or we're I'm mourning the end of the Flames playoff run. But we will see. Thank you guys again for tuning in. I will see you uh, next week, of course. And um, get out there. You know, do your best or whatever you want, you want to say to yourself. Eat a fucking vegetable. And God bless your little soul. Bye-bye.